0: Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November twenty-seventh, and it closes December eighth. Learn more at this is bracketracing.com slash elite. Or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. In today's special bonus episode, we're going to do something new. We've never had a show quite like this before. Now, this episode is in addition to our regularly scheduled programming, so to speak, um, our regular shows, which, as you loyal listeners know, typically drop. Wednesday at noon Central Time. Um, You'll get your show on Wednesday, just like you did last Wednesday, just like you will next Wednesday. Today's episode is a bonus episode. It's going to be a a new format to most of you listeners, but it's going to feel very familiar to those of you who are members of This is Bracket Racing Elite, the exclusive online community hosted by myself and today's guest host, my co-instructor, Kevin Brannan. Within this is Bracket Racing Elite. KB and I host regular live chats in which we field various questions and/or topics from our members and give our best explanations, um, sharing our experience, our knowledge, in an effort to lead members in a positive direction. Many of our members say that it's their favorite feature of this is Bracket Racing Elite. So today's plan is essentially a public version of that live chat format that we're going to share with all of you guys so without further ado i want to welcome the man the li- the myth the legend my uh my co-instructor within this is bracket racing elite kevin brannan what's happening kb
1: oh not much buddy uh, appreciate you letting me join in here
0: oh absolutely pleasure to have you on you're uh, you're no stranger to the sportsman drag racing podcast i know you've been a guest host before so our uh our listeners uh probably uh, recognize the voice
1: <laughs> yeah i guess uh i uh, guess you got a vacation for a week i don't think jed's got a vacation
0: yet <laughs> i don't think we'll hear from jed today so we'll give him a little bit of a break uh, <laughs> there you go <laughs> so what we're gonna try to accomplish today on uh this bonus episode of the sportsman drag racing podcast uh, first and foremost we hope that you all leave here, you know, this this podcast, just a little bit better racer, maybe a little bit different perspective, maybe thinking about things that you haven't thought about necessarily before. Um, and while we're confident that we can accomplish that goal, let's be real here. This is an hour long podcast at the most. We're going to scratch the surface on some of the topics that we discuss every day with an elite. So our secondary goal is to provide a a snippet, so to speak, of what This Is Bracket Racing Elite members enjoy on a regular basis within that exclusive community. Um, If you're listening to this and you're wondering, what is This Is Bracket Racing Elite? We'll go deeper into that, uh, into what's involved later. But here's the basics, just to, to give you a little bit of background. This Is Bracket Racing Elite is an exclusive membership community full of hundreds of racers just like you. These are racers from all walks of life, all areas of North America, all forms of sportsman drag racing, all levels and experiences of success. KB, you can attest our group has world champions, divisional champions, track champions, on down to racers that haven't been doing this more than a couple of months, Um, all in one place, all sharing a common passion for our sport and a desire to be the best version of themselves within it. Uh, the group, as you might have gathered, is led by Kevin and myself, features regular trainings, discussion videos, written blogs, interviews, accountability challenges, and much, much more, all designed at that aim, improving our on-track game uh, one day at a time, uh, one training at a time, like one one. One one day at a time, one. Uh, what's the word that I'm looking for here, Kevin?
1: <laughs> uh, you got me on that one. Uh, I right,
0: put you on one piece at yeah. a time.
1: There you go, Before, one piece at a time.
0: <laughs> Before we get started, um, let me formally introduce Kevin. Uh, we said former guest host of the show. Uh, former NHRA and IHRA world champion multi-time big dollar bracket winner in my personal opinion one of if not the very best racer in the world today but you know all of that because you listen to the sportsman drag racing podcast KB tell us a little something that we don't know take me back I know that you come from a racing family Uh, take me back to where it all started for you in racing
1: well uh I got started back when uh I've been around it all my life. My mom raced. My dad raced. Um, one thing probably most people don't know, my mom had a little street um, pickup truck. She ran in a uh, foot brake, and uh, she was actually racing with, while she was pregnant with me. It was a real slow, man. it went like 1050s or something to the eighth mile. But um, So pretty much I was racing before I was ever brought into this world. <laughs> so it's something pretty neat. Um, my mom passed away probably about three, I think it was three or four years ago. Uh, she was one of my, she was my biggest fan, my best, uh, biggest supporter. Um, so that, that was one thing that was special in my race and having my mom.
0: Yeah, no question. And your mom and your dad both raced as you were growing up, right?
1: Yeah, they both raced. Dad still races. Um, you'll see him every now and then you'll see him at some of the bigger races, um, he won the 50 grander at Galat for a spring fling he still goes and races with us a good bit it's it's fun to have him there um along with ivy and her parents it's something really cool to to be around
0: so you come from this upbringing around the racetrack you're obviously soaking in knowledge from both parents that are going on the racetrack and all of the people around you fast forward now to where you're at today and all of the success that you've had along the way um and kind of bring it full circle like why did you decide to become a part of this is bracket racing elite and start to share that knowledge that you've accumulated over the years with our members
1: um i think it's something i really started to realize with ivy um having her racing and and just being able to explain and kind of give her the look of the of what the race should look like and to see her to go out there and do well and execute and and Realize what I what I'm trying to explain to her, and she sees it and picks up on it and learns from it. To see her do good at it, that was one of the things that made me want to start um, or was interested in joining Elite to do the same thing with the Elite members. I, don't, I honestly I don't feel like I'm not I'm not claiming to be the best, but I've been fortunate to be around such good racers. My dad helped me so much when I was growing up, and then obviously working with Scott. He's a four-time champion at Par Race Engines having his knowledge and he would talk with me uh, during work and after work and give me um, ideas and things I should do. So having him and then now having you uh, being able to talk with you and hanging out with you a good bit, just learning so much information it's really helpful. And I like to use that information towards with our members and elite and to see them succeed and do good. That's a great feeling.
0: Yeah, I think, and I hope that this resonates to people listening. Like, what sticks out to me about you, KB, and I don't mean to blow smoke like on a podcast, but just when you talk, it just feels genuine. Like it feels like you're you're trying to help people in the same way, and talking to them the same way that you would want a—I uh, don't know if mentor is the right word—but you know, same way that you would want someone that you're looking up to talk to you. Um, and and I I just think it resonates in everything that you do. So, our paths are. <laughs> Similar, I think, in a lot of ways, because, um, like, if both my parents didn't race. My mom is still honestly afraid to watch me go down the racetrack, much less take the wheel herself. And, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. Um, but my dad raced. And uh, so I kind of grew up at the racetrack as well. And I I think our podcast listeners have probably heard this story to some extent, but I... Um, I was really fortunate, I didn't realize it at the time, but really fortunate when I look back to grow up where I did at the time that I did, um, from the time that I was eight years old until <clears throat> I started racing myself, both in juniors and big cars. Um, we lived in Arlington, Texas, near Kennedale, and uh, I was I was a bike ride away from Texas Raceway, which at that time, that day and age, um, played host not only to some of the bigger races of that time, um, bracket races, but... Like on a regular Saturday night, we'd have – before they moved to Tennessee, we'd have Scotty and Evan Richardson. We'd have Jeff and Jeremy Heffler, Jeff and Robbie Lopez, Tommy Phillips, Nathan Martin, like go on down the list. And the opportunity to watch those racers do what they do so well – um at such a young age and then ultimately basically in every case that i just mentioned befriend those guys and get to kind of pick their brain like it put me so far ahead of the game when it was time to actually start racing myself and then same thing like you had just talked about like fast forward to founding this is bracket racing.com and ultimately starting this is bracket racing elite it's kind of like it comes full circle and gives provides this you unique opportunity to share a lot of that knowledge that was shared with me and then of course all of the stuff that i've picked up along the way in 20 years of living it um with people and racers that are just as passionate about the sport as i was what 25 years ago and still am today so that's uh, the cool part of this is bracket racing elite i think for both of us um Katie, before we get to the nitty-gritty, and I know that we've extended this um, <clears throat> introduction probably longer than you wanted to, um, but the reason that you're listening is to hear us talk about some of the topics that you listeners have presented. Um, but before we do, just a few quick words about This Is Bracket Racing Elite from one of our many satisfied members. Um, this, uh, these words come from Jim Feaster. He's an elite member racer from Ohio.
2: I initially chose Elite because I needed a change in my racing program. Luke and Kevin's tutorials provide the guidance I needed to make the immediate changes necessary for me to feel competitive in the world of big buck bracket racing. Elite has helped me identify the gaps in how I was approaching and executing each round of competition and put a plan in place to address said gaps. Also the sense of community and accountability keep me focused on racing throughout the work week. As a personal evaluation, I feel now I'm in the 60th percentile as a competitive bracket racer. I want to be in the 95th percentile. That's what keeps me coming back month after month to Elite. As I identify the next improvement opportunity, Luke and Kevin are there to provide their input, guidance, and feedback to address the issue. To me, Elite is one of the best investments I've made in my racing program to date.
0: All uh, right. We asked for this, um, both on the podcast uh, a few weeks back and uh, within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. We asked for questions for topics that you guys would like to see us um, address here on the podcast, and you responded. We actually had to take our favorites. We had we had overwhelming response. Um, we've got some great topics to cover today. Uh, without further ado, KB, I think I'll just jump right into this. Um, our first question how can I determine whether or not my torque converter is too tight or too loose? Um, more of a technical question, which um, I, this, which is always a little bit tricky, I think, to get into because I don't think of myself as like the most mechanically-minded person in the world, but um, done it hands-on for a lot of years. So this is the best way that I can come to explain this because I don't think that torque converters specifically – are the black art that a lot of racers make them out to be um i'll take this as simply this is the most simple explanation that i can give when fluid gets hot obviously you have like a a breakdown in viscosity so think of it in terms of your um engine like most of us fire up a race motor uh first thing in the morning it doesn't have heat in it and it's got 80 90 pounds of oil pressure at idle and then you warm it up and you make a run and you're coming back from a run when everything's hot. And that same motor with the same oil in it has like 20, 25 pounds of oil pressure at idle, right? As the fluid gets hot, in this case, oil, it thins down. Transmission fluid does the same thing. Except when transmission fluid thins down and maybe it's – I don't know if it's necessarily the fluid exp- um, thinning so much or the metal expanding so much in the in the converter. But regardless of the cause – as it gets hotter, the converter stall goes up, like the converter loosens up um, from a cold run to a hot run or a hot lap situation. And that's something that we've thought in the past. uh, But now you can verify it, like it's backed up with data acquisition. But data isn't really even necessary to determine this. Like, Any combination you have, uh, if you make the first run of the day and then a back-to-back run, the converter is going to get a little bit looser with heat. So what that means, now that's not typically monumental, but let's say that you've got the converter behind your motor stalls to 6,000 RPM when it's cold and you make a run and come right back and make another one, it's not going to stall 6,500 on the second run, but it's going to go up some. Like It's probably going to stall 6,080. Maybe it'll tickle 6,100, something like that. So on some combinations and some motors, depending on how loose or tight that converter is, that may not make a huge difference. But if the converter in your application is a little bit on the tight side to begin with, and let's, let's say that it's got your motor operating in a range a little bit below its peak efficiency, right? Let's say if you're looking at a dyno sheet, this would be fairly easy to tell. Like Say that your um, engine makes peak horsepower and, and, and its torque window is somewhere between, say, 6,500 RPM and 7,200 RPM, but your converter only flashes to 6,000. Well, when it heats up, and it loosens up to, let's just say, 6,100 for the sake of simple um, discussion, you're getting closer to that power and torque band of the motor, right? So almost inevitably, the motor is going to be happier. It's going to be closer to that peak efficiency. It's going to perform better. You're going to pick up ET. That's a telltale sign to me that the converter is a little bit too tight. So if every time that you go to the racetrack, the first run is your slowest run, And then because you can't duplicate the heat of a run, like I don't really care what your warm-up process is, when you come back for the second run, if you always pick up 200s, your converter is probably a little bit too tight. And with heat, it loosens up closer to that desired range. Now, uh, the opposite is also true. Like Typically, a looser converter is more forgiving because... It's rare that odors just fall off a cliff at a certain RPM range. Like they tend to stabilize up in the high RPM range. So, um, <clears throat> but if your specific combination is sensitive to that, and you've got a converter that's on the loose side of that same, you know, peak performance window, let's say that your motor makes the most power and torque in a range in a tighter range. Let's say it's from 6,300 to 6,800 and your converter flashes to 6700. Well, guess what? When you get it warmer, you're almost getting outside of that peak range. So in a combination like that, where the converter is a little bit on the loose side, it may actually slow down with heat. And that would be a telltale sign that, hey, maybe I need to snug that converter up just a little bit, bring it back into that peak RPM range. Now, on most motors, like I said before, you kind of get to a point where you can make the converter so loose that it doesn't much care, and heat doesn't make a huge difference, again, as long as you're loose enough to start with. Because again, most motors have a fairly um, large window of peak um, efficiency, Um, but most of us err to the side of putting the converter too tight to take advantage of that window now wide open particularly uh, in in a bracket race setting um when you get the converter loose enough like uh, transmission heat won't have a huge effect typically because you're just somewhere in that big window but specifically like throttle stop racing kevin if you're running super comp super gas this becomes a lot more critical because just think about what i just talked about you've got um uh, Converter that wide open flashes 6500 and you get it really hot, maybe it goes to 6580. Like if you had a dyno sheet on most of your typical, um, you know, b- bracket or, or superclass motors, that discrepancy in terms of horsepower and torque from 6500 RPM to 6580 is typically not monumental. But if you take that same motor and now choke it down on the throttle stop so that you're going to have the same difference in converter stall as it gets hotter. But let's say on the the stop, it's rolling at 4,200 RPM, and then you get a bunch of heat in and it's rolling at 4,280. Look at that same motor on the dyno in that RPM range. Typically the increments are larger there. Like that 80 RPM at low RPM um, makes a much more monumental difference in the amount of power and torque that the motor's putting out than it does at high RPM. So this issue of having a converter that's a little bit too tight or potentially a little bit too loose um, and the effect that transmission heat has on that seems to actually get multiplied in throttle stop racing versus bracket racing, if that makes any sense. KV, I kind of took that one all to myself. Um, it was a tech end. How about a question for Kevin? Um, one of our one of our buzzwords, as you know, KB in within this is bracket racing elite. And I guess this is two words, not really a buzzword. Um, strategic flexibility, something that we talk about a lot, um, and we often use personal stories as um, examples to illustrate our points. Greg Brown, who's one of our uh, elite members, asked you specifically, Kevin. Can you think of one specific round that displays maybe a creative use of strategic flexibility? Something that you did differently in one particular matchup to take advantage of either the situation, the conditions, or maybe even um, tendencies of a specific opponent?
1: <clears throat> yeah, look, that's a that's a good question. Um, I'm probably going to use one of my runs from Vegas in the uh, driving James car. Uh, I like, it's a pretty good example because we was both pretty even on mile an hour wise. So it me, it's, it's a good look to, to explain to the listeners. Uh, so basically, I looked at our time runs. And, and in NHRA, we get paired after first round. So I knew who I had before I ever went up there. So I looked back on drag race central. I'd seen what he'd been running. He's almost like identical to what I was running wide open. Um, the mile arm was the same Our incrementals were really close all the way down the track. So I talked to some of my buddies, I talked to Justin lamb and some of the locals that knew who he was. And they, they kind of told me that he was more of a spot drop racer than he was a wheel racer. So when I seen that and I seen what he'd been running, I knew kind of how much he was holding. Well, I've, felt like if i would hold as much as what he was it would give me a really good look at the half track to tell me whether he's he is trying to use that strategy or not so basically i set up hot 905 was the index i was set up nine flat 901 um it turns out i was gonna actually go like 899 so we hit on the tree it looked really close to me we're really close at the 330 Um, going through the eighth mile we're like pretty much wheel to wheel so i I ripped the gas and peeled one or two off, and he kind of, he pulled out in front of me. And then once he pulled out in front of me, he didn't try to wheel race me back. He started moving out, itching further out in front of me. So I was like, okay, well, he's probably going to hit his drop spot. So uh, if looking back at the numbers, this was actually the exact numbers. I was 19 at the tree. He's 21. Um at the three thirty I went 4:34.9. four nine, he went four thirty five five. So I was eight thousand in front of him. The two I had in reaction and this and then the six that I had him on the track. Um the eighth mile I was 6:21.3. one three, he was 6:21.7. one seven. So we're still within sixth at the eighth mile. But um after I ripped the gas and peeled a number off, um by the thousand foot I was actually behind 004. Um So I kind of knew then as he was pulling off in front of me that he's going to hit that drop spot. So I kind of just rolled. I decked it back and held it down right to the finish line. I stayed right behind him a little bit, and I just sat down with him. Uh, My wind light comes on. I'm dead on. He's under. Um, So pretty much it gave me that look. But the reason that I do that is if I'm dialed honest right there, I'm going to be, if I'm trying to go 905, I'm like 500s behind him at the eighth mile. So that track position really is is big and super comp, being able to to show show the other racer that you're there. And then and he's, he's starting to wonder, I'm supposed to be set up hot and we're side by side. And then he kind of just like, instead of trying to race me, he's like, I'm just going to hit my drop spot. And I ain't going to pay attention to what I was doing. So when he hit that drop spot, he... He was a little bit hotter than he thought. I'm dead on. I give him very little room to get in. I'm. I got like I said. I got 2,000 to tree and a dead eight. So I give him 6,000 to get in on. But I showed him that wheel early, and I think it messed his strategy up a little bit. I dropped dead on, turned the wind light on. So that was one of my strategies, and that's kind of how I how I try to drive in Supercom, because you you can kind of manipulate that track position, and that's huge in super
0: yeah, I love that strategy, Kevin, for a variety of different reasons, and probably the the most advantageous, or what I see the most, and you do this probably more than I do, but it's the idea that in this instance, like, your opponent was actually super disciplined, because he just kind of went down there and hit that drop spot, and he got close to the index anyway, you said he was a few thou under. Um, what often happens there is, like, I call it kind of setting up behind an opponent, is you kind of freak them out because like this put you put the shoe on the other foot like if i'm racing you in that instance i know that i'm going whatever it is four or five under and we're even you know at the eighth so my first thought is okay like i gotta drop right he's obviously going as fast as i am but then when you kill that et in the middle and you get back behind me like it's gotta create a little bit of doubt in my mind. Like now I'm gonna get there first. I still gotta kill some, but like it's not such a cut and dry that I gotta get behind. And typically, or I don't wanna say typically, but oftentimes what happens in that instance is you induce a mistake in your opponent because we talk about how um, the race. You know, we can come back from a race and relive it and spend ten minutes talking about it, but the reality is like it all happened in eight seconds. And any time that you can create that shadow of doubt for your opponent, like that, that moment where you there's indecision and they have to make a, a decision, I think that plays into your advantage. And that's what you did here. Like Your opponent had to be at least momentarily confused. And oftentimes, like I said, he had a lot of discipline to actually get close here. But a lot of times what you'll see is that opponent that's set up 4-under like lock up and do one of two things. Either basically sail through 4-under or lose track of where they're out on the racetrack and drop way too early because you've not necessarily induced a mistake but you see you've created a picture that's different at the thousand foot than they expected to see at the eighth would you agree with that
1: yeah i would agree with that um one of the reasons or one of the questions i get asked most is like why so much well if you put in that position that you're only holding 200s which a lot of people try to go two under in supercom if I'm two under there and he's holding that much, we're two thou different at the tree. He drops a seventh thou under, so that's telling me I've got to take two or less to win the round or get way behind. And that decision's a lot harder at the point of you're trying to that I'm going nine oh three or whatever. He's going faster than that, so I've got to catch that drop and take two or less. This decision and game plan just played out a lot easier in my, for me than trying to take two or less. I'll be all about
0: Our next question comes from a podcast listener via email. I'll keep it anonymous. question is, I get amped up and nervous for big rounds when I know that there's money on the line or a potential buy run late in the race or oftentimes even first round. The nerves affect my performance negatively. What can I do to combat that? Um, first off, let me say this. Um, you're not alone. By any stretch of the imagination, and particularly with the nerves for first round, like there is uh, I, I think most of us would agree that regardless of the stakes in the scenario, like first round is the hardest round, particularly when there's not a buyback round. like the 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 first round that there's not a buyback is is typically the one that provides the most anxiety. Um, but I, I would answer that question or at least discuss it by saying this. nerves, aren't a bad thing. Like I, I being nervous is a good thing because it just means that you care about what you're doing. So I try to, um, consciously and intentionally, um, embrace that in my experience. Like you look at being in the final round of the sprinkling million or the U S nationals and you think, well, like that's a huge spot and it is, but I don't remember thinking in those moments, oh, wow, I better win. Like I may never be in this situation again, right? That's true. I may never be in that situation again. But I kind of reframe that mentally. Uh, Instead, I think consciously, again, intentionally – how cool is this? Like, I have dreamt about being in this moment right now, um, in the case of the U.S. Nationals, like, since I was old enough to know what the U.S. Nationals was. Um, you know what I mean? Or in the case of the millions, since I've read about the first million. Um, and I personally live for that feeling, like that that excitement, that rush of adrenaline. And I, again, consciously try to take some time to, um, take the joy from that moment, right. Um, embrace those butterflies, so to speak, and just realize like how cool it is to be in this spot right now, because, uh, ultimately like I'm going to, Tell my grandkids about this one day, like win-lose, whatever happens in the next five minutes, like this is awesome. This is a story that I'm going to tell for the rest of my life, right? Um, So just soak that all in as much as you can. We tend to think that um, confidence comes exclusively from experience. And uh, let's, let's be completely honest, confidence can come from experience, but not all experienced racers are confident. And not all confident racers are experienced. Like, it's flawed logic. If winning was the only way to build confidence, then no one would ever win for the first time. And there are people that win for the first time every Saturday night all across our country, right? So how do we build confidence when we're not winning, well, when we haven't won or specifically like we, we know how to get there, we've won in the past, but it's not coming together for us right now. Um, and I, I pinpoint three specific ways to do that. One is preparation, right? I personally derive a ton of confidence from pre- preparation, like spending the extra time mechanically to get my vehicle ready, spending extra time on the practice tree, just thinking through scenarios and my combination. And, and I've gotten like what I what I perceive to be an edge from that throughout my career, uh, the idea that I outwork the competition. Now, I'll be completely frank. Like, that's may not even be true. But I believed it was true for a lot of years. Like I believe that I've put in the work um, to have an edge, and I take that edge with me to the racetrack. So for me, preparation has been a big confidence builder over the years. Um, The second one, how do we build confidence when we're not winning? Uh, Knowledge, just in general. Um, and, And I guess knowledge comes from experience to some extent, but knowledge can come from other forms. It can come from... And talking with racers that you look up to, it can come to paying attention and watching racers at the racetrack and or in, in this day and age on live feed. And of course, it can come from a community like This Is Bracket Racing Elite as well. The third thing to build confidence without necessarily the experience of winning is, and this is probably the most important to me, understanding that particularly in our sport, performance and results are two different things meaning that uh, you can perform really well most of us understand this particularly within our sport Um, we play a game of inches decided by thousands of a second so there are times when you can go like not just a round not just a weekend you can go a month with seemingly not making a mistake and have nothing to show for it And you can't allow that to beat you down. On the flip side, you also have to have the perspective that to realize that when you're rolling, like you're not unbeatable. Like you're just getting away with the mistakes. You know what I mean? And be able to learn from those as well. It, It does go both ways. But I think that ability to separate performance and results um allows us not only to build confidence in some ways but to keep from going down that downward confidence spiral that i think if we're honest with ourselves most of us have gone down at least at some point in our careers look like
2: one of the uh-
1: most common questions that I get, uh, talking about reaction times and struggles. Um, it's something that I personally struggle with from time to time. Um, I think I to say 75% of the people struggle with this. Um, I get the question when, when it gets dark at night, how do I know when to pull the numbers out or how do I, or I'm losing at night? Should I trust myself or, and really people struggle with that. Some people pick up at night, but I'm, I'm going to say most people with the LEDs actually slow down at night. Um, that's something that I've, I've caught myself with. But being able to realize that, I think it really comes back to, to some of the trainings we do in Elite. Having that weekly practice exercise and hitting the practice tree and, and building that confidence to know that I'm hitting the tree well, that I have to trust myself like early in the morning is normally my best hit and then it kind of slow down or I normally stay somewhat pretty close during the day um at dusk that's when I'm gonna hit it like I was in the morning I, I'm liable to catch it a little bit better so but for the most part during the day I stay pretty close but at night time I struggle I'll lose 10 um sometimes 15 at night but I know kind of leading up to that that when it gets dark that i have to trust myself and then if i go out there and pull a couple thou out and i'm 12 at the tree then i know i need to pull a couple more out and then i come back and i'm eight or whatever as long as as my numbers are adding up i have to trust myself i have to know that i'm hitting the tree well um it's it's hard to pull 10 or 15 out at night, knowing that sets you up red from where you was earlier in the day but um, that confidence in that in hitting the practice tree daily and knowing that you're you're doing what's right that's where you really got to work on and trust it um, I think a lot of times on these multi-day races when when you're running three or four days and you've been racing all night I think you lose reaction time throughout the weekend also so just knowing that you have to trust yourself is is something that you build off of that confidence of hitting the practice tree um, what do you think about that luke i know sometimes i've talked to you about it and you've said you thought you maybe pick up a little bit towards night but i know when you hit the price tree you feel more comfortable and and you're you can tell your spreads are definitely a lot closer
0: yeah no question i mean we live this at the million and to answer your question kevin like my typical um you know personally and, and this is this is pretty individual like i think this is different for everybody there is like, a lot of people that just consistently lose at night no matter where the sit or what the situation is uh, for most of my career i on leds i've similar to what you said like been relatively consistent throughout the day and usually my daytime number and nighttime number uh correspond pretty closely. Like usually I don't have to pull any delay at night. I have to add some at dusk or at at dawn if you're racing in a in a super shaded condition at any point during the day. Um but in reference to exactly what you're talking about, like we parted together at the million dollar race this year and it was whatever, Friday night. I went a couple rounds almost in spite of myself when the sun went down I think I was like 18, 21, back to back. There might have even been a third one in there where I was 22 and, and again got away with it. And I remember telling you, like, I don't understand what I'm doing. Like, I don't normally lose at night. Why I, I, I don't know whether to pull it out or not. And you basically just looked at me and said the same thing that you just said. Like, you hit the practice tree how many times a week? Like, you've hit the tree three times now. You would know if you missed it. You have to pull it out. I'm like, all right pulling it out. And then I went on this run where I was double O for four or five consecutive rounds before I ultimately got beat. But like you said, the biggest thing is having the confidence to trust yourself and say, okay, I've made whatever the case is, whether it's one, two, three runs. Um, and I keep coming up with these numbers that are slower than I think they should be, or maybe quicker than you think they should be, whatever. Like at some point you have to just say, okay, I trust myself. Like I've got to pull it out now. Um, and I think that that trust, particularly in our case, and it's something that we really stress in this is Bracket Racing Elite, comes from the sheer magnitude of practice and time that we put in on the practice
2: tree.
0: Kevin, I'm so glad that this question came across because if there is one question that I get asked more than any, it's probably this one um another email submission i'll keep the name anonymous uh, luke i have a dream of racing for a living how can i get there kb i could talk about this for days um i have lived this um we've sp- actually dedicated several trainings to this within this is bracket racing elite but i'm gonna digress here um i'm gonna leave this one to you kevin you are living it right now um dream of racing for a living how do they get there what advice can you provide
1: oh this is a this is a good question like you said we get asked this a lot um the i want to tell you some of my or what i've went through and some of the things that that i've talked to people that like yourself and others that have done this for a living and got their advice on it if you want to race for a living some of the the biggest important part is you got to surround yourself with good people and good companies, um, to have, it's, you just can't do it going in alone. You have to build that relationship up. And that's something that I fought for a long time. And, and honestly before I won the world championships and stuff, people knew me as a bracket racer, but to win on that stage in NHRA, um, with, with just a few people helping me there, um, that really put me on the stage. I'm just being honest. I know that sounds like a bad thing when somebody asks you, like, "Oh, you got to win first. Well, in this business, that's kind of what you got to do. You got to go out there and work hard, and you got to show people that you're a good racer and that you can do it. Um, one of the other things is, it's this is one of my biggest keys. I think people have to respect you and they have to trust you. You have to have a good name. You have to do what you say you're going to do, and, and you have to live that. Um, people. Are, they, if you tell a company or you tell just a random race or something that you're going to do, you better do it because that, that word and your name is a lot of it going around. Um, another thing is you got to have minimum bills. Um, I was fortunate enough to have my truck paid for and, and race cars are paid for. And I obviously got Buddy and Renee and Ivy that help a ton. Um, but the minimum of bills, if you don't have a bunch of bills other than my house payment, i don't have no big credit cards i don't have no big debt like that i don't think you can go into this in debt um you got to have a kind of a good cushion also i recommend if you're going to do it have a good bit of money saved up just in case Um, because at any time you can blow a motor or or have some kind of failure on your rig trying to get there so to have a little bit of a cushion i wouldn't go in broke and um this is the big thing that I've learned from you, and and I know you've told me from the times that you talked with Tommy. And this is one thing that he, he, the biggest part of it, you've got to have some type of cash flow coming in. You've got to be able to to sell some sell for somebody, or or you got to have a cash flow of some sort coming in. You can't just go relying on I'm going to win this week. I know I'm good enough. I mean, obviously a lot of if you're winning a bunch of money yeah you feel like that but it's not going to stay like that all the time you've got to be able to make some type of money and, and help ease that pain of uh or that burden of going racing with those big fees and stuff today's racing when you've got so much um so many big prizes to win it's it's a good time to race for a living And it's a bad time um there's those big fees and a lot of chances to win, but you can really go broke really fast trying to get there. Um, and like I said, the, having the people surround you and help you, I, I couldn't do it by myself without Buddy and Renee and then without having you helping me, Luke, and helping me get to where I'm at and, and with the right people. And that that's the key. I mean, you can't just go in and do it by yourself. You've got to have the help for sure.
0: Yeah, I don't think that I could say that better myself. It's, it's more about what you spend than what you make, and I don't care what level you do it at, um, it's not sustainable to just win more than you spend. Like you said, there's got. if you look at just about anyone I, – I really can't think of any exceptions, to be completely honest – that does this quote-unquote for a living – There is something attached to it. There is something more than just winning races, whether that is sponsorship dollars, whether that is an associated business, um, you know, selling parts or fabrication or building motors, whatever the case may be. Um, whether that's race promotion, like there's so many different avenues to go down that, that, um, i don't want to say subsidize your racing but but just create some type of cash flow because even if you have a great year like the ebbs and flows of racing are really really difficult if you don't um like you said come in with zero debt uh, number one and number two um have yourself a cushion because there are gonna be times when not only do you not win anything for three four or five weeks but like inevitably that's when um you tear up the ring and pinion or kick the rods out of the motor like it it all comes in bunches and you've got to be able to weather that and the way to weather that is to not be solely dependent on turning on wind lights um, which makes it seem like more of a job i get it like we all think of like i'm just going to go race but typically to race quote-unquote for a living um there is a little bit more associated with it than just riding down the racetrack kb um Let's wrap this thing up here with a little bit more information on this is Bracket Racing Elite. If you, the listener, are feeling uh, you're tired of feeling like a failure in racing like you want to improve you want to eliminate those mistakes but there are things standing in your way maybe i don't know maybe you haven't been racing for long like you lack experience maybe you don't have a huge racing budget or uh, you don't have great equipment like your car isn't consistent the bottom line is you're not living up to your own expectations or maybe worse yet, you're not living up to the ex- expectations of others, whether that's your spouse, your teammate, your father, um, your kids, your friends. Like all of that can be difficult to work through. And our game isn't cheap. Like it's difficult to justify the expense, the time, the money, the energy that we invest. Um, it's difficult to justify that to ourselves. Um, and it's even harder at times to justify that to others. When we're not having success. And it's one thing, like I talked about before, not to get the results. But when we perform poorly, it's even more difficult to justify. And there is a difference in those two. That may be the hardest part in general, that in our sport, there could be hundreds of entries. There's just one winner. So mistakes, um, particularly in big spots. They tend to stick with us. And when they stick with us, they, they tend to compound and multiply. Or, like I mentioned before, we can do everything right, have nothing to show for it, right? That is the our sport. It's, it's what does Alan Reinhardt say? It's a right place, right time kind of sport. It has as much to do with who you run and when you run them as what you do in your lane. Either one of those, like making that mistake in a pivotal moment or just getting your brains beat in on a good run, those can both easily cause a downward confidence spiral if we're not careful. What if I told you that we can help you regain that confidence, improve your skills, reframe your perception of your performance? How can we do that, Kevin and I? Experience. Like, we've lived it. Right. From the highest of highs, national championships, million dollar race wins to the despondent lows that our sport can offer. Like we've all been there scraping pennies together to get to the racetrack only to just get our brains beat in all weekend. Uh, Kevin and I each, we know how that feels. We know it feels to struggle, to question that effort, money, time invested to lose confidence. We've been there. And we teach people just like you, thousands over the last decade, hundreds right now within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. Speaking of This Is Bracket Racing Elite, what's included? When you sign up and become a member of our exclusive membership community, for one thing, you get access to our comprehensive online library. 250 plus trainings on just about every um, aspect of sportsman drag racing that you could possibly imagine. You get community um, within our exclusive Facebook community, that's This Is Bracket Racing Elite, 250 plus racers sharing similar goals, experiencing similar roadblocks in the pursuit of those goals. If there is something that you are struggling with on the racetrack, I can almost guarantee you that we have another member who has worked or is working through something similar. And let me tell you, KB can attest to this, there is power in teamwork and in shared ideas. And lastly, you get, Direct access to me and Kevin on a daily basis. And it's not just us, like in terms of learning, modeling uh, after some of our success, but maybe more importantly, um, learning from some of our failures. Like the idea being that we have failed in this spot uh, so that you don't have to. You know what I mean? You don't have to go through it firsthand. Maybe you can learn from our mistakes. Um, And in addition to the two of us, this is Bracket Racing Elite offers access to exclusive interviews with some of the very best performers in our sport. It's a growing library that currently includes racers like Justin Lamb, Tommy Phillips, uh, Austin Williams, Troy Williams Jr., on down the line. The cost of This is Bracket Racing Elite is $95 a month. Now, you can learn more about this. You can sign up. Go to thisisbracketracing.com elite. Now, you're asking, "Who? that's a little bit steep. What if I don't like it? Well, there's zero obligation. It is a month-to-month thing, right? And it's easy to quit if you decide for whatever reason that this is Brack racing Elite isn't for you. All of our billing is through PayPal. So if it makes you uncomfortable to email me or Kevin or call us and say, hey, look, I, I need to opt out of Elite, you don't even have to let us know. You just go on PayPal, turn off that automatic subscription, and it's done. Now, there's no reason not to email us. You can do that, too. We can cancel it on our end. It's simple. That's what you can do if it's not everything that you dreamed of, but it will be. You will like it. Don't take our word for it. Listen to what another one of our members has to say about This Is Bracket Racing Elite.
2: My name's Eric Paterka, and I have been a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite for the entire 2018 season. The last race of my 2017 season was one of the most frustrating and expensive weekends at the racetrack in my 20-plus years of drag racing. I decided that if I wanted to improve my results and reach the next level, I needed to make a change. I joined Elite to improve the off-track portion of my racing program, things like car setup, dialing strategy, and mental preparation. Luke personalized my training by pointing out specific material that I should focus on, based on where I felt I needed to improve. My off-track adjustments became an immediate booster to my on-track performance. At the last two races of 2018, I laid down performances that could have won anywhere. There's no doubt that Elite played a major role in this season's improvements. If you're considering joining, you will not be disappointed. There is no more effective way to improve your racing program than this is Bracket Racing Elite. All right,
0: guys, I hope that you have benefited from this podcast in some form. No shout outs this week. Sorry. Or this special episode. There'll be shout outs at some point. Um, we've uh, we've shared some thoughts, uh, some ideas that I hope you can implement on the racetrack. But again, if you're serious about taking your game to the next level, I'm confident that Kevin, myself, and the members within the, our This Is Bracket Racing elite community can help you make your racing dreams a reality. Time's running out. On December 14th, we are closing open enrollment to This Is Bracket Racing Elite. There will be no new members after that date for uh, several months at least. So if you're ready to make 2019 your best season ever, we would love to have you in This Is Bracket Racing Elite. To join, visit thisisbracketracing.com slash elite today.